Talk features thought leadership interviews with bank and credit union industry-wide executives. If you are the CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. This is Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. And today we're talking mortgage forbearance, specifically the end of the forbearance programs related to the CARES Act and some of the implications that those might have on you as a banker. So hopefully you get as much out of this session as I do. Let's begin. Okay, welcome back to Bank Talk. Today I have with me Andy Howitt. Uh, Andy is a senior VP and policy leader for uh, Household and Regional in the Research and Stats Group of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Andy is a co-editor of Liberty Street Economics blog, which is where we found him, and uh, and a co-editor of the <laughs> Bank's Economic Policy Review. So, Andy, I wanted to thank you for joining us. I'm really glad to be here, Charlie. Thanks for having me. I found Andy. I found your material in the Liberty Street Economics blog, which uh, we're a follower of. You always have some really interesting things to talk about. Today, we're going to spend a little bit of time on forbearance programs, specifically uh, related to the CARES Act and the fact that some of these are expiring. So thank you for joining me and experts in the industry on this topic. So great to have you. Well, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, I think it's a very important topic. So I'm glad you're focusing on it. So you wrote an article, um, the, the blog I found, or the blog article that I found was called uh, Keeping Borrowers Current in a Pandemic. But I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes on forbearance through the CARES Act. You know, which borrowers were eligible, you know, anything you can kind of give us on, on you know, forbearance in general. I, I, if, if you don't mind, let's start there. Before I start, I should just say that everything I say today will be my own opinion and not those of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or the Federal Reserve System. I'm a researcher, and so um, I sort of dug into this into this subject, and the the work that we did is sort of independent of the bank's positions on these on these matters. Who is eligible for forbearance? Well, it depends a little bit on what kinds of forbearance you're talking about. The CARES Act was quite explicit about certain kinds of forbearances, particular mortgage forbearances for those whose mortgages are federally backed. And by federally backed, I mean either guaranteed by um, the FHA or by the GSE, Fannie and Freddie. And so for those borrowers, the CARES Act instructed that they would receive forbearances that would allow them to miss payments um, without damage to their credit. Now, there were other parts of the CARES Act that made forbearances on other loans um, a lot easier for lenders to offer. So in particular, there was um, some language in there that without getting into too much detail, allowed lenders to, um, gave, gave lenders the opportunity to have favorable accounting treatment for modifications of other kinds of loans in the pandemic. So for example, um, jumbo loans that were on bank balance sheets, mortgage jumbo mortgages that were on bank balance sheets, or maybe auto loans that were on lenders' balance sheets could be modified. That is, the lender, the borrower could be allowed to get some forbearance without costing the lending institution a lot in terms of the accounting treatment of those loans. Okay, so that so, that helped them, if I understand that correctly. That helped anybody that maybe wasn't in a mortgage-backed security. Or in a program that you know leads to a mortgage-backed security, 
allowed them some leeway to also forgive the payments or move them to the end of the, the term of the loan without having to worry about the, the credit side of that and making sure that, you know, the, the borrower can make their payment. Is that, am I thinking about that right? Yeah, that's right. And the regulators came out, um, and it, it, we actually linked to the to the regulators' statement. The regulators, including the Fed, came out and made a statement about how they would be, you know, give favorable treatment to those kinds of modifications of the kind you just described. So the regulators are not going to come down hard on you if suddenly you have some non-performing loans because you've offered forbearances. That's what it boils down to. All in all, that that means a pretty broad swath of borrowers had access to one or another kind of uh, forbearance. Now, you and I spoke a little bit about forbearance relief and and whether or not you know that extended to uh, you know is that just a one to four family? Is that a you know is that just me as an individual homeowner, or does that apply when I if I own a duplex or a four family or yeah? How, how far did they go? that way if we're just staying in the mortgage realm? Different programs for different kinds of mortgages. Most of what people think about and most of the um, blogs that you referred to on Liberty Street Economics have been about the residential mortgage forbearance programs. And that's kind of what I was describing earlier. You know, people who have their the home they live in mortgaged with a mortgage that was um, guaranteed by, let's say, Fannie Mae. Those are residential mortgages, one to four uh, family properties, as you say. And that's a big, the way that many, many owner-occupied units are financed. Then there's a different set of mortgages that are secured by multifamily properties. So here we're talking about apartment buildings or, you know, seven or eight unit buildings where there's a mortgage that is maybe, again, guaranteed by Fannie or Freddie, but the borrower is not the people who live in the property, but instead the landlord who rents to the people who live in the property. So there were forbearances offered on both of those kinds of mortgages. But of course, because they're pretty different kinds of uh, situations, the forbearance programs had to be a little bit different for those uh, for those different kinds of properties. So the reason we're talking today is to really kind of get our heads around to the expiration of those programs. Give me a feel for the uh, residential piece. Is just a residential or everything expiring very quickly? And if so, you know, roughly when do those expire? Yeah, I think they're all set to expire on September 30th. Okay. You know, there's there there are many different kinds of guarantors here and um, different kinds of mortgages, as we've discussed. And so I can't swear that every single one of them is going to expire on September 30th, but that but certainly many of them will. So this is the final month of these programs or of many of these programs. I think one thing that's a little bit interesting to note here is that these programs were put in place, you know, as you mentioned, under the CARES Act, which is now 18 months ago, and they were expected to last much shorter than they have lasted. And they've been extended many times throughout the course of the pandemic, most recently over last summer, or this summer, the one that's just passed. And, um, you know, I think that's an interesting sort of perspective to take because it shows that they were sort of set up in anticipation that this would be a relatively short event. And that speaks, I think, a little bit to the philosophy that underlies these programs to sort of think of the pandemic as like a natural disaster. We've had natural disasters in the past, you know, hurricanes or earthquakes, where either the government-sponsored enterprises or maybe individual lenders have offered forbearance to people who are affected by those natural disasters. And, um, you know, they take a few months to get back on their feet because they need to rebuild or, you know, recover from the from the natural disaster. 
and then they are able to resume payment on the mortgage. Um, that I think is kind of the philosophy that went into these programs early on, and people were sort of thinking, in a few months, this will all be over. I certainly was, I have to admit. But of course, in the event, it's turned out that these are turning out to be a much longer uh, duration program than we had initially expected. And the reason that you and I started talking about this is, I, you know, I just had some some questions around the expiration of these and, you know, and whether there'd be some, some ripple effects related to them. Uh, before we, before we talk about that, I wanted to spend a couple of minutes around renters and, you know, the ability to, there, there was also some laws that, that I think recently got passed that are related to, you know, whether or not a renter can, can get moved out of their property. Can you spend uh, just a minute or two on that? On just uh, you know, if you if you know timing around some of that stuff, and just kind of what's going on on that end? Yeah, I won't I won't get all the timing right because I think it's a little bit of a complicated series of events. But I think you know, in broad strokes, I think it's fair to say that early on in the pandemic, there was not much protection for renters, um, and then ultimately the the CDC put an order in place barring eviction of renters for non-payment of rent, which you know was intended, I think, in part to um, serve as a public health measure because we don't want people doubling up in their housing or you know losing their housing in the middle of a pandemic. That moratorium um, was in place for some time. Over the last couple of months, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to try to interpret the legal situation, but over the last couple of months, it sort of has been renewed in some sense. And so I believe that that is also scheduled to end quite soon and probably the end of September, although I'm not sure about that date. Along with forbearance that owners of multifamily properties were offered, that they were offered that in exchange for an agreement not to evict their tenant for non-payment of rent. So there has been, of course, a lot of tenants lost their jobs or were lost hours or were otherwise economically impacted by the pandemic and therefore weren't able to make their rent payments. Those, you know, eviction moratoria worked and agreements with lenders essentially worked to keep evictions from happening over the last year and a half. That again is, is coming to an end. And um, but there's a big backlog of unpaid rent that is sort of accumulated over the last 18 months. Now there's a I don't know if you want to talk about that, but there's a some possibility of relief um, for that problem at least, but it's it's not been realized yet. I want to kind of focus on the the concept of eviction relief ending at the same time as forbearance, right? It, it's sort of you know at least in my head, it seems like those two might balance each other out, but of course it's it's far more complicated than that. And I think the topic that I brought to you originally, and I, I want to present this to you and give you the opportunity to give your thoughts. The first thing that came into my head when I when I heard that forbearance relief was was going to end was even outside of a pandemic, you have this natural cycle of foreclosures that goes on. And in that natural cycle, let's say you know every six months, so many foreclosures would normally happen regardless of the pandemic. People have overextended themselves. They lost their job, you know, whatever causes a foreclosure. Now we've held off on those for 12 to 18 months. And is there sort of a ripple effect of, you know, if now payments are due and that group can't catch up, you know, do we have sort of three periods of foreclosures about to hit us? So I'm going to, I'm going to stop there because I'm sure there's far more implications of the way I'm thinking about this. And yeah, so that's it's a it's an extremely interesting and 
I'd say a complicated question. Let me let me start by saying you're right. In a normal year, even in a good year in the housing market, we might experience you know a couple hundred thousand foreclosures for a variety of reasons. People you know lose their jobs, as you say, and they happen not to be able to sell for whatever reason. Maybe they don't have enough equity to pay off the mortgage that they owe, and therefore they are forced into foreclosure and lose the home. So that is right. That happens every year. Um, Even in a great year like um, 2019, when house prices were growing and income growth was strong and the mortgage book was quite high credit worthiness, um, there were hundreds of thousands of foreclosures. That said, over the last 18 months, people who normally in that sort of normal cycle would have lost their home haven't lost their home. In fact, they've not even been marked delinquent because, in fact, there's been forbearance programs. So people who may have you know, normally lost their job and even in the normal course of a growing economy, in normal times, their lender would say, well, we can give you a little bit of help for a month or two, but ultimately you're going to have to pay us back. Now, in the, in the current circumstance, they're able to extend that period of help and non-payment for quite a long time without damage to their credit report. So importantly, people who've missed many months of payments are currently showing as current in terms of the lender's ability to foreclose on them. It is true that there's a lot of people out there who may have sort of in that way benefited from the forbearance period. When the forbearance period ends, that help will be gone and we may see them sort of starting to slip into foreclosure or delinquency and then foreclosure. But I don't think that'll happen all at once because it's not as though there are these people who are, you know, many, many months behind. And the minute that there's a allow, it's allowed there to be foreclosures, they will be foreclosed upon. That's really not the situation we're in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to play out over some time. Well, we're going to take a break here. I wanted to spend just a couple of minutes as we hear from our sponsors. As a preferred partner to community banks and credit unions, Remedy Consulting provides niche services with technology planning, vendor contract negotiations, and system selections. If your executive team is too busy with day-to-day operations, or you would like an assessment on your technology vendors, give us a call at 262-955-7776 or visit our website at remedyconsult.net. So you and I also spent a couple minutes prepping for this, and I, I want to prompt you for one other thing that we were talking about there. So because re- relief has gone on and now everybody's got a clean slate, even if that six months begins today, I think in a normal foreclosure cycle, you don't know whether or not the value of your asset has gone up or down. If I'm a mortgage person who has had 12 months of relief, I'm a a mortgage holder and uh, I've gotten 12 months of relief. Now my slate's clean. And let's just say I still have no ability to make those payments. At some point I would have sold and I may have sold at a loss. You know, what, how how do you think about equity in the homes right now? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great point and a key ingredient into foreclosure. Taking the example you gave, borrower who's missed 12 months of payments, the way these programs are going to work is that that person is going to, they, they previously had a, 10 year left on their mortgages on their mortgage. Now they have 11 years because they've missed 12 payments and they're going to have to pay, but maybe they can't pay. So starting October 1st, they are not able to make their October payments, a payment, et cetera. So what happens? Well, for most of those households, 
we expect that they're going to have positive equity in the home because home prices have risen actually very sharply over the last um, year and a half, and especially over the last year. So house prices are up, you know, 15 or 20% over that period. So for many, many of those borrowers in the situation you just described, they'll have positive equity, which means they'll be able to sell the house and pay off the mortgage successfully rather than go into foreclosure. Either way, they have to leave the house. And so it makes sense to sell if you can and not sustain a lot of damage to the credit and hold on to the cash that you've accumulated in the property. That's not to say that there's nothing to think about after that, because if the the borrowers who you're thinking about who haven't been paying because they've been in forbearance were to all simultaneously put their properties on the market, that could be something to be concerned about. There are about 2 million of those borrowers. And so if they all realize on October 1st, they can't make their payments, and suddenly there are 2 million more properties on the market, the implications of which you'd want to think through carefully. Markets are very tight right now, the housing market. Um, and so it's a good moment for there to be some more supply. Nonetheless, we're not sure about what implications that might have for prices and um, you know, for the health of the housing market going forward. So it's a concern. Yeah. And it's probably unprecedented, I would guess, right? It's it's not something that anybody's ever seen before this long a forbearance period for for one. I mean, it, it, it isn't something that even back in you know, 2006 or 2008, we were dealing with or, or thinking about that way. No, that's right. There's there's never really been anything like this at all. I mean, there have been, you know, as I say, natural disasters where certain borrowers or even a large number of borrowers in a particular area have gotten forbearances for a very, relatively short periods of time. You know, the, the many borrowers in Texas and Oklahoma received forbearances after the winter storm there. Um, but those forbearances are already coming off the uh, the borrowers' credit records. And there's been nothing like a national program of forbearances that f- affects millions and millions of borrowers for many months. There's, this is completely unprecedented. So they're short-term, they're regional normally. If there's going to be forbearance, exactly. it'll be a natural disaster, but not across the country kind of thing. Exactly. Not in length. I got you. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So, Andy, I think it's a it's an interesting topic related to forbearance and and potentially coming off of forbearance. And the way we've been thinking about it is, I, I believe that this concept of forbearance, meaning people not paying their mortgage and potentially people not being required to pay their rent, has led to a couple things. You know, number one. You know, the most obvious one, I think, the way we've thought about it has been the savings rate, I believe, has increased. And we've kind of talked about that previously on this on the Bank Talk podcast. But, you know, between savings rate and paying off other debt, uh, could you give us your thoughts on, you know, number one, what happens with forbearance? You know, what's happened since forbearance has started? And now that we come off of that, you know, just uh, is that going to change when mortgage payments are suddenly due? Yeah, I think that's that's a really great and interesting question. Start off by observing that, you know, for a lot of households, the way they save money is by paying off debt. So it's not like they're tucking more money into a savings account. It's that they pay down their debt. And one of the things that we've observed um, over the last 18 months is that credit card debt has gone down. That's been one of the ways that the savings rate has gone up is that households have been paying down their credit card debt. It turns out that when you look at people who have mortgages and compare the people who didn't get forbearance or didn't request forbearance to people who did request forbearance, they look a little bit different. The people who didn't get a forbearance paid down their credit card debt by about 15% between March of 2020 and March of 2021. But people who did get a forbearance paid down their credit card debts by 
about 20% between that over that same period. So they paid down a bigger percentage and it actually turns out they were more in debt on their credit cards to start with. And so it's actually more dollars as well. So what does that tell us? It suggests at least that some of the money that some of the cash flow that was freed up for these households that didn't have to make their credit card, I'm sorry, their mortgage payment was able to be deployed in paying down their high interest rate credit card debt, which for those households is great because they're able to sort of take advantage of a little bit of interest-free money, that's the forbearance program, and use it to pay down high interest uh, high interest debt. You know, that's only one small piece of the big question you asked, but I, we think it's an interesting one and sort of an unintended effect of the forbearance program. Is that they wouldn't have really, they're not paying into interest. They, they took a low interest loan or a no interest loan and applied it to a high interest payment. So they're, in theory, right, the payments on the interest itself which doesn't do that household any good, right? Yeah, is are, exactly. are the ones that decrease. So that is a that is a fairly interesting uh, perspective on it. If the savings rates are still high, and forbearance is is about to expire, does that mean that we can expect that? Well, at least you would hope that that there is there might still be some savings available to start making those payments, so that foreclosure is less likely. Am I thinking about that right, or is that is that taking too too much of a leap? Yeah, we don't know for sure because if if what people all did was take the money that they freed up from the forbearance programs on their mortgage and plunked it down on their credit card, it's going to be hard for them to re-access that cash maybe to pay their mortgage, make their mortgage payment. So we don't really know for sure whether the savings are liquid enough or fungible enough to be able to deploy to keep people out of uh, foreclosure once the programs end. There's some reason to be a little bit optimistic about that because there has been quite a big increase in the savings rate. Nonetheless, I think you know there's there are plenty of households out there, um, almost certainly, who will indeed find it difficult to resume making mortgage payments um, in October, and that makes the transition out of these programs and into whatever the new normal is going to be for these households really sort of fraught and something that uh, you know I'm glad you're drawing attention to, and uh, we're obviously paying a lot of attention to at the Fed. And the the loans, I think we covered a little bit of this, but I'm going to ask it again. The loans that are in, how many loans are in forbearance? Uh, you may have mentioned that number. I don't know if I caught it. Yeah, I think I think we think about nine million, nine point three million um, mortgages went into forbearance at some point or another over the course of the last eighteen months. And right as of our most recent reading, which is in June, end of June, there are about two million in forbearance still. Okay. Point okay. out, I mean, one thing that's important to know about those. You know, it's always been the case that the people who entered forbearance were sort of disproportionately coming, living in lower income neighborhoods, had lower credit scores before the pandemic. And that's been, that's especially true now. The people who remain in forbearance are disproportionately lower income. FHA borrowers, um, which is a sort of a first time buyer product for the most part, have lower, had lower credit scores prior to the pandemic. So they look, they look like a little, more disadvantaged group than certainly most mortgage borrowers and even than the group who had some experience with forbearance over the last 18 months. One last question I want to ask you before I let you go here, but uh, is there anything else we haven't talked about? Any other topics we need to touch on? I mean, I think we've talked about the main important issues. I would, you know, maybe reemphasize how unusual this experiment has been. We've gone now 18 months where many, many borrowers, millions of borrowers have been able to 
delay making their mortgage payments without any damage to their credit report and without risk of being put into foreclosure. And so far, at least by many measures, um, it's been successful in that we've avoided a huge wave of foreclosures like the one we saw during the great financial crisis. On the other hand, it's not over yet. We have a couple million borrowers still in forbearance who need to transition to this new steady state. And, um, you know, I think before it's time to judge these programs as successes or failures, we have to sort of see how the, how they play out over the next few months. So again, I'm really glad that you're drawing attention to them. And I'm really thankful that you asked me to be on the program. You know, as foreclosures are natural and as foreclosures occur, right, maybe by stifling the foreclosures, we may have, uh, you know, there may be some implications in having shorten the housing supply to some degree, right? So, and, and again, because this is a big experiment, we, you never know how it's going to turn out. But conceptually, once foreclosures start up, that might actually relieve some of the problems we're having in the economy related to the to the housing supply. You know, there may be some positives and some negatives that go along with that. Yeah. And that may, may happen through foreclosure. Or it may just happen through people selling because they decide this is too much house for me. So yeah, hopefully right. the latter more than the former. All right. Um, great information, Andy. And I, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. You have uh, a blog called uh, Liberty Street Economics. And to me, I, I found quite a bit more information out there. We get the blog and, and you know, there's always something fascinating coming out there. Uh, how do folks get to that? Well, I'm glad you like it. And it should be, I think, of a lot of interest to the people in your audience. It's um, Liberty Street Economics at the New York Fed. So if you Google Liberty Street Economics and New York Fed, you will almost certainly be brought to our homepage. And another way to get there is to go to the New York Fed's homepage and look for the blog link at the top. Great. Well, thank you for joining us and uh, excellent perspectives. Really appreciate Thanks you spending some time. Bye-bye. Okay, for Bank Talk, once again, this is Charlie Kelly, your host. Thank you for joining us. I always appreciate a conversation with a good economist. Somebody like Andy really helps me understand how little I am, I know about the, the implications of macroeconomics in particular. So hopefully everybody was able to get something out of that. And for Bank Talk, this is Charlie Kelly. Keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast. For more information on forbearance, check out the Liberty Street Economics blog on the New York Fed's website. Or if you're interested, go to banktalkpodcast.com for the latest information. And we will see you in the next episode.